Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative. This morning, I'm talking to Roger Green, who's out of Brooklyn, New York, and we're in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Institute annual meeting or biannual meeting. This is the fourth time they've had this, and I've had the pleasure of being down here three of those four times. And we're going to talk today with Roger about what's going on in New York around worker co-ops and other forms of co-ops, and also what he's expecting to do down here in Cincinnati and what how he's how this is merging what he's doing in Brooklyn and what's going on in Cincinnati this weekend and around the U.S. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. How are you? I am great. How are you today? Good. Good. Okay. Let's talk first about what what are some of the kinds of things that you're doing in Brooklyn and how did you get into it. Yeah, the key thing for us in Brooklyn, I think, um, driven by this imperative to address the um, structural economic inequality uh, that exists in um, certain communities and how the impacts on poor health outcomes. We've been, for the past, quite honestly, now seven years, more than seven years, been working on trying to save some very important healthcare institutions, our hospitals, our ambulatory care facilities. And while we're doing that, creating a parallel movement to ensure that those institutions are actually providing economic opportunities for folks with that have been impacted by, again, structural economic inequality. We've been looking at how the social determinants of health, you know, how abject poverty, relative poverty, wage insecurity and the absence of wealth contributes to poor health outcomes uh, throughout central Brooklyn, which is, you know, predominated by people of color. So as we've been going through this, I guess you call it like a community of inquiry as we're struggling to keep these institutions open, we concluded that, and this was a collective conclusion, that we needed to see if, in fact, we could redirect these um, anchor institutions, these healthcare institutions, redirect their supply chain back into the local economy to create living wages and um, broad-based profit sharing, you know, for people living in these communities. And in doing that, uh, we were blessed with, uh, you know, having some advice and counsel from folks from Mondragon uh, as a result of uh, leaders like uh, Michael Peck and uh, Carmen Curetis Noble at CUNY Law, who exposed us to the Mondragon Cooperative Federation and how its uh, operations, its economic ecosystem 
has uh, created economic security for folks in Spain and then how that could, in fact, be uh, applied to central Brooklyn. Yeah. So let me make sure I get this, though, because you told us a lot here real quickly. Yeah. Poor I, food. I, I apologize. Poor housing. Yeah. Jobs that don't pay a living wage. That's right. All of these kinds of things yeah. sort of like is a funnel to poor health. Yeah, we call those the toxic triggers of poor health. Yeah. Toxic triggers. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all uh, a number of different studies uh, that have uh, been uh, released recently that clearly indicates that, you know, your health is more likely to be informed by your zip code even than by your DNA code. If you live in certain communities that are impacted by, let's say, environmental degradation, by food insecurity, by uh, even poor housing, those things can contribute to you having poor health outcomes. And our coalition actually initiated a series of studies throughout central Brooklyn. We've completed four studies so far using what's called the participatory action research methodology that goes into communities uh, and as opposed to studying the, the, um, uh, the people in the community, actually having them work with you to participate in qualitative analysis. Uh, and in this particular case, we had a series of studies in which this, the people in the communities themselves said, well, I believe that my poor health outcomes are related to the fact that I can't get fresh, fresh produce in my community. We've had a more recent study in which we've had qualitative analysis where people have said, I'm stressed out, and I know it's impacting on my hypertension, and I can't sleep at night because I fear that I'm going to be displaced from my house within the next uh, two months. We actually have that data. So we call those the toxic triggers of poor health. And So I, I always start for, for black folk particularly with eating pig feet and and with our diet, and now you're telling me it's where we live, how we, I guess. Well, diet, diet is what diet is, or the. Uh, well, I thought that was it. Yeah, well, it's part of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, de definitely. If you live in a, uh, a food desert facing food insecurity, and uh, you're not securing access to healthy, nutritious foods, and the only thing that you get at the uh, at the corner store is you or know, in a general dollar. Exactly. They're selling. Uh, processed food, sugars, sugar, that's right, yeah, that impacts on your poor health. And so these are questions of, uh, of equity, access, opportunity, and, um, and the absence of uh, progressive models for sustainable community economic development. I said, but when you say things like that, I'm, I'm, I'm all the way back to if I've got poor health, that I heard this stat that in <clears throat> Cleveland, if you lived in inner city Cleveland, some of these zip codes, you live 10 years less than somebody lived in the suburbs. Same thing in central Brooklyn. That's right. Same thing. Yeah. So it's not only poor health, quality of life, and how long one lives. That's right. So it may not be God calling the home. It's that poor food, poor water, That's right. poor housing. Absolutely. That's it. That's absolutely it. Yeah, there's no question. We have data that clearly demonstrates that um, the longevity and the quality of life in, in central Brooklyn is a lot less than, let's say, in Kipps Bay, which is in the, you know, um, parts of Manhattan, you know, uh, mm -hmm. east side of Manhattan, no question about it. And serious data coming out of one of our key leaders, um, 
Dr. Torian Easterlin, who was a member of our coalition, who worked with the um, health commissioner to actually uh, come up with a mission saying that you cannot have um, good health in New York City unless you um, embrace an aggressively anti-racist public policy. That in part, uh, classism and racism also contributes to poor health outcomes. And, and that's actually in a mission statement that was um, composed and articulated by the health commissioner. Yeah. Okay, so you're telling me mm -hmm. that this whole thing, racism, this white supremacy, this sort of this whole thing in what I call systemic discrimination, if it's not one person saying, hey, I'm going to get you, but yeah. our whole system in America. Yeah. Okay, America is racist and it creates this class system and if you're in the bottom class no matter what color you are but if you're in that bottom class then the likelihood is you're going to have poor outcomes poor health oh yeah no question you know so recently you know they studied this crisis within the so-called rust belt um even west virginia and they now call the term despairing death um, Don't talk about my home now. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Well, that that despairing death, yeah, death, yeah, and and that has been you know something that I think many of uh, folks in communities of color have known for some time. You know that when you, when you look at again poor health outcomes, they are in part related to folks who despair based upon the alienation that they're facing, which is inextricably linked in many cases to. Uh, structural economic inequality. There's no question about it. Uh, there's no accident that the epidemic of opiate-based drugs in certain communities is inextricably linked to um, folks who despair uh, because they are unemployed. You know, they don't no have... No hope. No, no hope. hope. That's right. That's right. And so the same thing we see in data that we secured from the participatory action research related to housing displacement in central Brooklyn. Uh, people despair, they're stressed out that in communities that they've lived in for many years, for generations, they're now being displaced. And they can't afford the housing in New York City. And so they're stressed out over that. We have healthcare workers who are moving to the Poconos in search of cheap housing but they still have jobs and hospitals that are located in central Brooklyn, so they're traveling hours back and forth between their job and their homes, and that's stressing them out, you know, and impacting on poor health care or the quality of care for their patients. And they're saying that in the data, in the qualitative uh, analysis, uh, the, uh, the interviews that we've had with them, um, both in one-on-one -on -one and in focus groups. And so we compiled all this data and then began a process of putting together a um, public policy prescription to address this, this issue and began organizing to address the social determinants of health. Yeah. How did you get into this? It's fascinating, particularly if you have research that can prove it, yeah. what we thought all the time. Okay. <clears throat> so how did you get into this? Well, for me, it started with a lived experience, um, my own personal experience when I was in the state legislature. And I'd served there for about 25 years. But at one point when I started you know, securing so-called, quote-unquote, seniority, I became chairperson of the Committee on Children and Families and you know, just started looking at you know, doing these thought experiments and looking at, you know, what was happening in my constituency. One incident in particular really got to me. It was, I guess you call it an epiphany, you know. Mm -hmm. 
I had been challenged by the fact, or my community had been challenged by the fact that many of our children did not secure uh, mental health services. And I was chair of the Committee on Children and Families, and a lot of those children, because they came out of adoption, uh, foster care, juvenile justice system, when in dire need of mental health services, unfortunately. And, but we didn't have a children's psychiatric hospital. And so the, most of our children were actually sent to Staten Island. And so we began organizing, and over time I was able to enact a bill to create a new psychiatric hospital for Central Brooklyn, which was located in Brownsville in East New York. You know, $54 million complex, you know, and i never forget uh, the day that we did a, a tour and a ribbon cutting. I'm, you know, you know peacocking. Excited. I'm peacocking around. You know, I got my chest poked out. Listen, I'm going to come back and find out how it felt with your chest poked out. Okay. Okay, after we take our break. Okay. Everybody out there, please don't touch that dial. All right, no problem. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon This program is Everything Cooperative. We're live at you from Cincinnati, and Roger Green is our guest. Uh, just found out he used to be in the state legislation, and and he had a living experience of mm-hmm. being the state representative and in charge of children and families. And with that, he was telling us they had built this $54 million mental health facility, and he was out there being proud, excited yeah. about what was going on. Tell us the rest of the story, Roger. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the complex had... State-of-the-art Olympic swimming pool, classrooms, computer classrooms, art and craft, you know, uh, centers, and a dormitory that was just inc- incredible. So I'm obviously very proud about right. this. So towards the end of the tour, you know, cameras are flashing, you know, and I'm, like I said, peacocking around. And um, I just turned to the medical director, and I happen to say, you know, well, this looks really good. So uh, is everything okay? You know, is everything good here? He said, yes, but. He, he said, yes, but. He paused. He paused. And I said, um, can I help you with anything? And he paused. And very emphatically, he said, we just have one problem. I said, what's that? He said, the children, I'll never forget this. He said, the children, they don't want to go home. Yep. And I, I got it. And I turned to him. I said, you said what? No, I didn't say that. My chief of staff, Sania Metzger, said, what did you say? <laughs> he said, the children, they don't want to go home. And I said, what? And he said, it's good here. They got a swimming pool. They got housing. Um, they got food. They got, you know, all these amenities. They don't want to go home. And I pulled out, and as we were driving out that day, and I looked across the street, there were abandoned houses, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, you could see the impact of structural economic inequality and how it impacted on the lives of these children, the dissolution of the family structure because of it, in part because of it. Right. And, and, and then I started thinking, and I said, and on top of that, you have this entity and, I, you know, I mean, it's I'm, my brain is like spinning now. And I'm thinking, you know, we, we put all this money in here and the purchasing power and the procurements and all of that. I said, but it's disconnected 
you know, from the community, you mm-hmm. know. And I went home that night, and I never forget. So I was talking to my wife, and she's, you know, she's vice president of uh, the 1199. And she said, she said, Roger, it's probably like that with every other damn hospital that we have throughout the uh, borough of Brooklyn, which incidentally were under the threat of closing. And that's why I was in the state legislature. But it, that thing bugged me, you know. And I kept thinking about it and then started thinking about what should be the role of the elected officials, not only in the context of institution building, but of ensuring that those institutions are actually being of service to the community. And and then, of course, you know, the interfaith crisis occurred, which is another hospital which was closing. And then I started looking at this from the perspective of this disconnect that these institutions have where there's no democratic accountability in which the community can draw and define the type of resources that they should actually be providing to the community. And, you know, so, you know, that, 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 that's the thing that, that, that got to me. So I take it that's the bridge of why you're here now. That's the bridge of what co-ops are all about. Yeah, I think so for me. For me, what I look at is when you look at a political economy, it includes uh, not only the fiscal policies that come from the government, you know, and how they're shaped and formed, but the institutions within certain communities and whether or not those institutions are aligned with a progressive transformation for particularly communities that impact our structural economic inequality. So if you have a, a hospital that's purchasing toilet tissue and soap and pharmaceuticals and laundry, you know, who's benefiting from that, you know? Not the people in the neighborhood. Right. And if it's not the people from the neighborhood, what that really represents is social welfare colonialism, you know? Wait a minute. You keep throwing these words at me. Social welfare colonialism. That's my term, you know, that I, I believe, that, that if you have an institution that is um, receiving resources from the command bureaucracy, you know, and that's your money, my money, taxpayer okay. money, and including the money of folks who live in those those communities impacted by structural economic inequality. I got to hold you down a minute because yeah. you, you keep talking, you, and I got to tell you, I'm I'm with you almost, but okay. I'm bring it, and make sure that everybody and I really get it. So okay. here's what I have: is that people in the community pay taxes, they pay sale taxes, property that's right. taxes, income taxes to the government. And, and, to, and to create programs like Medicare, Medicaid. The government takes that money and they create those programs, but they also will, will pay for a hospital. 68%, 68% of all voluntary hospitals, no, I'm sorry, 86% of the revenues for all voluntary hospitals comes from taxpayers. Okay. Mm-hmm. So taxpayers are paying those people that all of this money is coming in, but those hospitals and those institutions... Okay, whether it's schools or hospitals or universities or whatever. That's right. Are taking their business to people outside the community. Absolutely. And so the community doesn't get any benefit of all of that generation of that's wealth, right. that moving of the money around. That's right. It skips over the community and goes outside. That's right. In fact, in, ah. th- in this particular case, healthcare sector supply chain is valued at $40 uh, billion a year in New York City alone, right? And in fact, the supply chain uh, for the voluntary hospitals and the public hospitals, all right, the supply chain um, has been essentially the contracts, purchase orders have been outsourced, mostly to right to work for less states. 
to states like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, North Carolina that have right to work for less laws. That's right. And I'm going to tell you, the, the hospitals in New York yeah. buy stuff from the South. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. I'll... Because the value of a cheap purchase, they value a cheap purchase as opposed to valuing um, redirecting that supply chain to address the social determinants of health, the toxic triggers of health in poor communities. And the cheapness is because the folks in the South are paying less money to their workers. That's exactly right. So this, so this is a vicious cycle, a vicious cycle uh, that we're contributing to not only the structural economic inequality in uh, central Brooklyn, but also in Mississippi, Alabama, you name it. Like, And the only folks that are profiting from this, again, is a you know, handful of people, you know, some folks say one percent is, you know, but again, I see this as a system of uh, social welfare colonialism. So I, I get that the 50 percent of the bottom half is not getting it. That's right. <laughs> Whoever's getting it. That's right. All right. There, there you go. That's right. right. Absolutely. The, the folks that most need it are not getting the benefits of this. $40 billion a year of purchasing by these hospitals in New York. That's exactly right. $40 billion. $40 billion. $40 billion. Toilet tissue, pharmaceuticals, food, laundry. You know, I can go on and on. And, and that's our tax dollars, you know. So we, we've got to have a system of democratic accountability that's linked to a system of economic democracy. So you've gone on. I'm still at $40 billion. I'm sorry. I'm that's, sorry. Okay. I had okay. To, that's 10 zeros, okay? That's yeah, that's right. Four zeros. That's right. That's right. Zero, 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 yeah, zero, zero, zero. Yeah, yeah. $40 billion of sales. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. A lot of purchase orders. That, that if orchestrated correctly, directly directed correctly to create uh, living wages and broad-based profit sharing for folks that then would enhance their health outcomes. Yeah. So if you take that $40 billion, stop buying it from the South where they're not paying anybody any money, and then uh, put businesses in Brooklyn or in New York yeah. where the people in Brooklyn and New York can work there and make a living. That's right. Okay that they can then buy what they need, whether it's food or housing, health care, whatever they might need, right. good water, then they have better health and the whole community survives. And I would think that the institution would provide that. That's the point. That's the point. You'd have a, win, 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 you'd win, have a win, virtuous win, circle win, win, instead win. of a, a, a vicious circle. Yes. You know, and that's the difference, and that's exactly right. Yeah. Vir virtual circle instead of a virtuous vicious circle. Virtuous. Virtuous. Yeah. Instead of a... Vicious circle, <laughs> you know. So I mean that—that's the point. Yeah, that's that's exactly, and it's logical, you know. See, we're on autopilot, you know, with all of this uh, stuff that keeps us uh, despairing, you know, having poor health outcomes and dying young, and dying young. Autopilot with uh, anti-democratic processes, you know. We're just on autopilot. We have to stop, you know. We need to, you know. There's a, uh, you know, Grace Boggs talks about we had a turning point, you know. And I think that's the that's what what I would like to articulate. We had a turning point, and we need to think differently, step out of our own ghost, and begin the process of, uh, you know, redefining. You know how we're going to uh, restructure our community and our democracy. You know, I think. Okay. That's well, we're going to take our second break, and then we're going to come back. And I really want to talk to Roger Green about this turning point and stop our 
own ghost, okay, and figure out what we can do. And that's why we're here in Cincinnati, and that's why the whole cooperative movement. All right, please don't touch that dial and come back and figure out how we can live longer and live happier. We'll be right back. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. I'm in Cincinnati today with Roger Green from Brooklyn, who we just talked about the problems of health care in America and all of the ills of America in terms of uh, poor health caused by poor housing, poor food, poor jobs, not paying a living wage. Um, it's, it's all there. And so now we want to talk about what he called the turning point. Step out of our own ghost, step out of our own death. So, Roger, well, first, this is why National Co-op Bank sponsored this program, and we've been sponsoring it, Roger, for six years. October was a celebration of our sixth anniversary, been on the show, and we were only geared to be on for one month. But it's taken on, and it's exciting, and I'm loving everything that I've learned, and the kinds of things you've been telling me today is just fascinating. This has turned out to be my school, my education piece. Um, and National Co-op Bank is an organization that was started in the mid-'80s uh, to help co-ops and their members by providing financial products, okay, particularly in low-income communities. Mm-hmm. So New York and Brooklyn is ideal for the kinds of, for their charter, their mission, their mission-driven bank. Okay, So they have been a great partner because not only have they provided financial support, but they've been there with everything and encouragement and, and pushing has been fascinating uh, working with Chuck Snyder and the group at NCB. So now we want to talk about this turning point. How do we stop dying so young? Mm. What are you doing? Well, I think, um, you know, go ahead. So the, the, uh, you know, we, we did um, like an autopsy, if you will, looking at um, why, um, there was this disconnect between our hospitals and the local economy um, and began to essentially say that um, we needed a paradigm shift in which the, we were, should redirect the supply chain back into the local economy, but not doing it in a traditional way. Um, looking at um, unionized worker co-ops as a model um, that would enable us to provide folks with a living wage and broad-based profit sharing within an enterprise. Um, and also uh, that worker co-ops, if organized correctly, um, and if they were true expressions of democratic practice with um, workforce uh, democracy as part of it, um, also would contribute to uh, the larger crisis that we're facing within our community, in fact, in the nation, which is a crisis in our democracy. We feel that um, the practice of democracy is important to the long-term democratic project of the United States. You know, And if a worker is living 
uh, most of his life in an undemocratic enterprise. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we think that contributes to the growing alienation that exists within our society. And so the concept basically is let's be democratic. You know, Demo- you know, let's have uh, democratized labor, democratized capital, and democratized wealth. And how can we do that? Well, we could start by um, looking at the models that um, was started here in Ohio um, with the um, agreement between the Mondragon uh, Cooperative Federation and United Steelworkers. Uh, so we met with our good friend, uh, uh, Michael Peck, uh, who began to give us greater insight into uh, this whole model of unionized worker co-ops. And we then sat down with the members of organized labor, uh, both the uh, 1199 Healthcare Workers Union as well as uh, the New York State Nurses Association uh, and other leaders in the community. And there was a consensus, and the healthcare administrators, and there was a consensus that this was something that we should pursue. Um, so we then began the process of saying, looking at how do we do this in the context of public policy. So we took um, uh, 14 elected officials uh, to Mondragon um, and with the help of um, our allies at the, at the MIT CoLab. Uh, we took them over to Mondragon uh, to study the Mondragon Cooperative Federation. Um, seven elected officials from Brooklyn, seven elected officials from the Bronx, the South Bronx in particular. Um, and the idea was to look at how um, the, or, and whether the Mondragon uh, Cooperative Federation uh, model would be applicable to central Brooklyn, uh, uh, creating unionized worker co-ops that would be aligned with the healthcare sector supply chain. And um, so there was a resolution that that would make sense um, and that we should create um, uh, uh, economic infrastructure uh, to begin this process. So we've incorporated a company, uh, uh, 501c3, a nonprofit uh, community development corporation called Citizen Share Brooklyn. All right. Citizen? Yes, yeah, Citizen Share Brooklyn. Share Brooklyn. Now, okay, that's, that's what I want to just You said you want to combine this union worker co op, mm-hmm. and a worker co op is. It's a business that's owned and controlled by the employees. That's right. So that's you want to create these businesses that's owned and controlled, democratically controlled by the employees. Yes. Okay, to get part of that $40 billion. That's exactly right. Okay, there you, you go. You keep talking about the supply chain. That's right. I think we understand $40 billion. At least we understand money. That's right. Okay. <laughs> oh, God, that's right. <laughs> or the lack of money. Or the lack more of likely. money. Yeah, yeah. So how do we get part of that piece of that? Pie. Show me the money. Okay, that's right. That's right. Okay. Very, very important. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we have a joke. We often uh, repeat. You know, anytime we hit a bump with this, we remember something. Milana Ron Karanga once said. He said, "You know, a Negro is a capitalist without capital." You know, <laughs> you know so you know, this is about. Um, uh, wait, wait, I, I want to hit on that. A Negro <laughs> is a capitalist without capital. That's right. That's okay, right. and I just want to again, growing up in West Virginia. Yeah. Anybody. Okay. In our little neighborhoods with black and white, there was we didn't have any Asians, didn't have any Amer- uh, Native Americans. We had one lady from one of the islands, yeah. African 
person from one of the houses. But for most part, they're just poor people. That's right. So with anybody that's in that 30% of the below the median family income, 50% of the below that's the right. median family income are capitalists, because I like that model, uh-huh. you know, that, this, that we can pull ourselves up by our own that's bootstraps. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like that model and that idea, uh-huh. but we have no capital to get started. That's right. That's right. And most part, the, the capitalists won't loan us money because we have no capital. That's right. You know, there's nothing wrong with capital. It, the issue is how capital has been manipulated and polarized. You know, that's one of the problems. And I think what we're saying basically is that we need to democratize labor, democratize capital, and democratize wealth. You know, that that's what we think we need to do in order to address the structural economic inequality that causes poor health outcomes within our communities. And so that the, the thinking, and it's, it was first aspirational, was that, well, perhaps we need to look at uh, worker co-ops, you know, as a model, you know. Um, and there's a history of that in our community, as you know, uh, dating back to, you know, um, when the Knights of Labor actually allowed African Americans to enter their union, and the Knights of Labor experimented with worker co-ops, the work that um, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer did, Ella Baker, you know, was actively involved in the formulation of um, worker co-ops, and and um, Marcus Garvey and Dr. Du Bois, you know, somebody said one of the few things they agreed on, you know, <laughs> that they didn't argue about between Du Bois and Garvey was the concept of a worker co-op, because the concept was basically um, that as we struggled uh, for economic self-reliance, that worker co-ops also created a culture of democratic practice that would be necessary uh, in struggling against other forms of oppression within our community. Right on. Yeah. Now, I just want to get a plug in for Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart. Oh, that's right. Who Absolutely. wrote the book Collective Courage, which was my education, my Bible on that's blacks right. in co-ops. And all those names plus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All with Martin Luther King. That's right. Rosa Parks. I mean, all of these civil rights leaders believe in this cooperative model, but it's just not taught. Right. It's not taught in our in our communities. It's not taught in our schools. Exactly. Okay. And so that's one of the reasons for this radio program to get this out there. And I think you hit on one of the most important issues. And in fact, when we took the elected officials to Mondragon and came, you know, we studied. Uh, it was very clear that when they started, the um, Monogram Federation, it started with a school. You know, you start with the, um, uh, the, uh, the mastery of knowledge, skills, and values that are necessary for uh, this type of transformation, this type of economic enterprise. And I think that there's no question that if we're going to be successful in Brooklyn, um, it, we're going to need an uh, a educational domain or a network of educational domains that prepares um, this generation uh, to become worker owners um, uh, and to understand the uh, both the knowledge, skills, and values that are needed uh, to become worker owners. And it also means a critique of the current political economy. Um, what's good about it, what's bad about it. You know, what needs to be transformed and how does uh, a vision of transformation uh, could be aligned with addressing the structural economic inequality in communities that have been marginalized uh, for far too long, you know, like that. So I was in in Baltimore uh, three weeks or so ago at the worker cooperative, the Eastern Region Worker Cooperative Conference, and I went to 
I specifically went there to, to go to this uh, particular um, workshop on co-ops in schools. Mm. In Puerto Rico, for 60 years, through legislation, they've had co-ops in schools. They have 53 co-ops right now, and uh, I know middle and high school, I think in elementary schools, where the students own their own businesses and they learn about business at this early, early age, and they learn, they learn about co-ops. That's right. Because I've been wanting to get that in schools with the fifth principle of co-ops is education, training, and information. That's right. Um, which was probably the second reason I like co-ops is that it was all about teaching. Right, so, right. So, and, and I want to get back to Citizenship Brooklyn, though. We got, okay, okay. okay. Uh, yeah, so, so Citizenship Brooklyn, um, we just incorporated. Um, it will be a, a nonprofit that will provide uh, assistance in building the infrastructure for, as we envision, a network of unionized worker co-ops that would be aligned first with the healthcare sector, as anchor institutions, and then also, I hope, um, we hope, that is, uh, that it will be expanded to include other anchor institutions such as the university system and the public school system, by example. Um, so that's Citizenship Brooklyn, but the, we will also have a for-profit arm uh, uh, LLC called Citizenship Global uh, that will look at the relationship between uh, these businesses and the global supply chain, you know, because, you know, that is the reality of the type of economy that we live in. Um, globalization, globalization is a reality or internationalization mm -hmm. is a reality. And we need to figure out how um, our community uh, fits into that, um, in, into that um you know, that supply chain. That supply that, chain. That's right. Going from forty billion to forty trillion, maybe. Hey, with a, you know, I I think that's you know you know it, that is a reality. Um, you, you know, we cannot continue to do these one-off uh, worker co-ops. I think they have to be uh, integrated into a a system of a. Um, a, a cooperative ecosystem, similar to what they have achieved in Mondragon. Maybe not exactly like it, but similar. There's uh, things that we can learn from the Mondragon model. Um, and then uh, look at it, as again, as it relates to the opportunities that exist in institutions, and I want to emphasize this, institutions that are, in fact, um, sustained by our tax dollars, and that's health care, which will grow exponentially. It's, it's the educational system. Um, again, I guarantee you that the supply chain for the educational system is probably being outsourced as well. Sure. Yeah. Perhaps to those same people. Maybe. But Maybe. we also haven't talked about the jail system and the number of people in jails. And exactly. How we can get some co-ops inside the jails so that That's folks right. can learn about co-ops. And then when they come out, they not only have a job, but they'll have a community that That's supports right. them. That's exactly right. In yeah. Italy, I think uh, people have 5% recidivism return. Back yeah. to jail, we're here in something like 70 80%. When we were in Mondragon, that was the third rail. Um, you know, in New York City, okay. We're going to come back to okay, that? Okay, okay. And right. we got to get to while we're here in Cincinnati. Okay, we'll right. be right back, everybody. Okay. In 
Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We're here to give you information about co-ops. We're talking about our our economy, the U.S., and how it racism has affected people's health, people's lifespan, quality of life. So we give you this information so you can go out and find a co-op and buy from them, or you can decide that you want to create your own. And this is what Roger Green and the folks there that they're working with are creating in Brooklyn and around Brooklyn. And we were talking about Citizen Share Brooklyn before we left out, and we want to get back to that. And, Roger, I'd like for you to talk about why you're here in Cincinnati. Because we want to learn, you know. Um, we assume that we don't have all the answers. That, you know, that's one of the reasons we went to Mondragon, and and we know that there are local um, demonstrations of some progressive thinking and prog- progressive practice around um, uh, worker co-ops. What's your definition of progressive? What's that mean? Well, I think, well, for me, it, it, it's it really means the uh, aligning with an imperative that ensures democratic practice both in the, this is for me I'm saying yeah. in our politics and in our economic system you know when I that's what I think about progressive but I also think about it in the context that the outcomes will ensure um, that uh, they are informed by um, that they ensure equity you know for all people regardless of race class gender sexual orientation or national origin you know that that that's where I'm at. You know, I, I've got it when I, when I I keep hearing about politicians that are progressive or this and that and the other. Yeah. And I got it seems like the politicians that they call progressive are trying to put in programs that help people, everyday people. That's that's there you go. Right, so I, that, that's, that's basically that's I like I like that it. I like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so you're here to learn. Yeah. Progressive thoughts, seeing what people are doing to help people. Yeah. And so that you can maybe take those that knowledge back and. Yeah. apply it in Brooklyn and wherever else you work. Yeah, and this, this has been fascinating because we don't have all the answers. This is a journey, you know, and it can be fragile at times, you know, and it's, you know, you can expect that you're going to make mistakes. Uh, but, you know, we've had a lot of folks depending on us, and so we got to, you know, try to secure as much knowledge as possible uh, from other people who have perhaps made mistakes and learned and can give us advice and counsel. But with uh, that, you know. I've got that I don't make mistakes, and people around me don't. What we do is we are successful and we and or we are learning. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. or the other. Okay. Well, I, I always go back to, um, I think it was Amokar Cabral, who's you know, leader of National Liberation Movements in Southern Africa, and he says, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. You know, and that's I think that's a, a very good admonition that we can follow um, when we're out here trying to engage in these types of struggles. You know, yeah. you know the 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 importance of, of self uh, criticism and, and 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 being humble enough to know you we don't have all the answers. No. We really don't. And so it's a learning journal journey. So coming to yeah. Cincinnati was incredible because I've been to Cleveland. You know, we were there, um, and Cincinnati and Cleveland are different. Now, what I found here is a um, more of a, a connection to um, a leadership that is uh, grounded in ordinary people uh, being that have been empowered to make changes within their communities. And I think that's uh, very important because, you know, you can create a capitalist corporation or even a, a, a worker-owner corporation, and it can still follow some kind of didactic uh, 
anti-democratic practices. You mm-hmm. really can. Yeah. You know, and so I think the the values component becomes very important for people that have been oppressed and alienated. They need to be empowered uh, to have a sense of self-agency, and I think that's what we found here in Cincinnati. And 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 you know, we need to learn from that and then figure out how to. Uh, incorporate those values into the work that we're doing in in Brooklyn. Now, I hope, so, I hope we can do that. So I have found that a co-op can be successful if it's following the values and principles of cooperation. The values are self-help, self-help. We're helping ourselves. We're there not looking for the man to come help us. We're That's getting, right. pulling together, helping ourselves. That's right. Self-responsibility. You got to have that responsibility in there. That's right. And there's the the offshoot of that is accountability, democracy, yeah. equality, equity, and solidarity. There you go. That's okay, right. We're working together. That's right. In the in the ethical principles of the founders of co-op, or the ethical principles of of Africa, is yeah. is uh, honesty, mm-hmm. openness, social responsibility, and caring for one another. That's right. Yeah, so I, caring for one another. That's yeah. That's right. That's right. And I think that this stuff is so important because. Sometimes, you know, you can get caught up into this kind of very technical dot the I's, cross the T's uh, formulation in terms of developing enterprises and even organizing within the community. But I think if it's absent values, you know, um, uh, uh, humane values, uh, I, I think, you don't. we're not going to be successful in the long run. We go back to this whole concept of the sparing death. How you get at that is empowering folks with a sense of self-agency that's connected to other people within their community, you know, building community. You know, Mm -hmm. Dr. King called it the beloved community, you know, Um, and I think that's what we're talking about, you know. Volunteer and open membership is the first principle, Mm -hmm. open to everybody. Democratic member control, we've been talking a lot about that, about the principles of co-op. Member economic participation. Put a little money in. If there's profit, that the members decide how they've gone out. And sometimes there's a dividend. Autonomy and independence, they have to have control. And fifth one, we've talked about education, training, information, cooperation among cooperatives. And this is why at programs like here in Cincinnati, I find that in everywhere I go, whether it's housing co-ops or, or credit unions, is this really sharing of data. That's right. It's, 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 don't hold on to it like right. if I tell you how I'm successful, then you're going to somehow do something to me. Right. It's competitive right. Right. capitalist model. Right. And then concern for a community. It's built into the DNA. That's right. Okay, making sure that we give back. And that's why when there's a profit or surplus, I've heard that co-ops have three areas they can do it. They can keep some for growth of the business, give away some for social responsibility and helping for the community that they're in, yeah. and or giving back a dividend to the members. And the, so the, these values are so critical, and that's why I go back to you were talking about the uh, educational uh, domains that mm-hmm. are needed to advance. Because I'm my background, I'm a former teacher, so I always consider myself an educator. What do you teach? What do you teach? I'm I, uh, I taught history, social studies. You know, All right? I yeah. was science and math. Okay, uh, okay. okay. We, so <laughs> compliment each other there. Okay. Uh, so I mean, for me. Um, I, I think that, in, 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 and it was reinforced when I went to Spain and, and viewed the Mondragon model, you cannot, we're not going to be successful if we don't have strong educational institutions that took the appropriate epistemology and pedagogy uh, to advance the knowledge, skills, and values needed 
you know, for worker co-ops and, and, and placing that in the context of, um, of, a, um, of a movement for economic democracy, you know, to build economic democracy uh, at, that would be parallel to political democracy within the United States. That's what I think, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think the educational system becomes very critical. Uh, in Brooklyn, what we're, what we're doing is um, we've identified some schools that uh, where the principals have agreed for us to come in and to integrate courses around career technology education with the study of worker co-ops, you know, how to become a worker owner. And so we're doing that at, um, uh, we would begin doing that at a school in Brooklyn called Boys and Girls High School and another um, learning center called the um, uh, STEAM Center, which is located in the Navy Yard. Yeah. Well, I was just in a, at a conference, a worker cooperative conference in Baltimore, and they talked about in Puerto Rico, they have had co-ops in schools for 60 years. Wow. And they've created the models and so forth. They have 53 co-ops right now in schools in Puerto Rico. Uh, so I'd like to hook you up with the people that was in there so to. you can learn from their model. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I would love to. There's a huge Puerto Rican population in New York. That's right. Matter of fact, I taught at City University one year at, out in Jamaica, York. York oh, College. York College. Okay. I taught yeah. math out there. Oh, wow. And okay. out there, when, what I noticed out there, and yeah. I was a little bit younger then, out there there was a fight between the blacks and, and the Puerto Ricanians for the crumbs off the table. Yeah, yeah. In, I, I taught at San Diego State, and there was a fight out there between the Mexican-Americans and the blacks about the crumbs on the table. And for both cases, I'm going, why don't we just come together? We, didn't, we right. ain't got much. That's right. And, and, and we're not getting very much. So That's why don't right. we come together? And this co-op model helped us to come together. Yeah, absolutely. No question yeah. about it. Uh, yeah. In our last two minutes, do you like what you're doing? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, you know, folks talk about your raison d'etre, your reason for being, you know. Um, mm. And, you know, mine has always been about, you know, uh, education, children, families, and how we create a, you know, a better life, you know, for folks in our community, you know, um, and I, I'm no different than anybody else, you know. Um, um, I've just been blessed, given the opportunity that I can express it, you know, um, and I think those of us who are given these opportunities, we got to do the work because a lot of folks would like to do what we're doing, but they can't, you know, mm -hmm. uh, stuck in these jobs that are, you know, in conditions that are anti-democratic and oppressive, that uh, they're not contributing to the larger community. So if we, uh, you know, given an, an opportunity, and I've been given many, you know, I've served in state legislature for 25 years, and they came out of that, and I'm still healthy, and I'm able to do a little something, you know, why not? I, I think for me at this point in time, and I know my colleagues would say this also, um, you know, with the work that we're doing now is seed corn, because uh, uh, we have to have an intentionality to transition this on to, you know, future yeah, generations. Right. Yeah, we got to. that, And that's really why I'm doing this now, you know. Um, you know, uh, one of my colleagues, Maurice Reed, and he's an incredible leader. We call him Job. You know, he's got the patience of Job. You know, he's the one that's, you know, inspiring us to, to move forward. Yeah. Thank you very much, buddy. You've taught me a lot today. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you could be with us down here in Cincinnati, and please live this week cooperatively. <laughs> <laughs>